You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It's always humbling and... and, uh level setting at this time of the year to see that God is getting it done, which is a great refrain in our scriptures. Jesus gets it done despite all of my attempts and failures and inadequacies and shortcomings of of not just me, but the staff and everything else. Jesus still gets it done and he gets it done in sometimes surprising ways. And so I'm so, so very thankful for these men and for this season in the life of our church. I always love getting to charge our congregation, charge leaders, and to sort of just set the pace for the coming calendar year of of really August through June. We we really have uh, another 10 months now to, to hit our stride. There's a lot going on, and we began in the month of August talking about this series called Pursue. And, and the idea behind it all is, is that the thing that keeps me and Matt and Mike and our elders up at night is, man, are our people, are they coming together? Are they knowing one another? Are they known by one another? And so we felt it was from the Lord that we wanted to, as much as we could, charge our people to connect, to be together, to pursue life together. So about four weeks ago, we started with the book of Haggai, that Old Testament minor prophet. And we agreed that it is time for the people of God to be busy about the temple of God. And of course, in this day and age, the age of the church, we do not mean brick and mortar. It's not about these three stories at 202 South Broadway. That the temple of God in this age is in fact the people of God. And it is never okay for the people of God to say, "Mm, not yet. That's not our priority. Haggai says, no, God wants for his people to always be mindful of the weight of his glory and to be busily building his temple, which means we take all of these unique living stones, as Peter says, and we busily try to assemble them and put them together so that God is seen in our midst and he is glorified. It is the time to intentionally, deliberately, and diligently be building the church. It's the time. Then about three weeks ago, Uh, Mike Hall led us through Hebrews chapter 2 to show us the extent to which God was willing to go to redeem, to buy back mankind to himself, that he sent his only son to become like that which he wanted to save. He condescended. He made the effort. He went all the way as low as he could to become like us in every way so that he might save. That's how deeply God pursued us as he sacrificially sent his own son. Two weeks ago, Tyler Sullins led us through Ephesians 2 and and helped us understand our identity. We are now free and unleashed to love and move our lives to other people because we lack nothing. We are God's workmanship, saved by grace. We don't have to try to strive to accomplish and obtain and achieve. We have all that we need for life and godliness, Peter says. That is our identity. We are now free to pour into other people. Last week, we talked about Ephesians 4 and that it is the biblical response to our culture's tendency to atomism, to where all of us want to simply fritter off as 
atomic particles that are not related, not connected, just doing their own thing with no ultimate purpose. Paul says, no, little elements, we are to molecule. The church is to make molecules because the whole really is greater than the sum of its parts. That's what the church is supposed to be about. We are supposed to pursue one another. If you don't like elements and molecules and atoms, that's too much chemistry, fine. We'll go biology. We're supposed to cholesterol. We're supposed to clump together. But it's okay, it's the good cholesterol. I have both. You see, it's the good cholesterol. We are supposed to clump and coagulate. We're supposed to pursue one another. But it reminds me of a friend that I have here in Tyler. I get to eat lunch with him uh, periodically, and he's from Tyler, pretty much been here almost his entire life. He's from here. And as we have lunch around town, different places, every now and then someone will walk up to him. Like, hey, how's it going? How you been? Haven't seen you in a long time. And as I'm watching this as a third party, it's completely clear to me that my friend has absolutely no idea who these people are. Good. I mean, they, no clue whatsoever. But I'm tickled because I'm thinking he's trying to make this work and they know him, he doesn't know them. And finally, it'll, uh, it'll come up, it'll just, it has to come out. I will say, well, hi, I didn't catch your name. My name is Eric, and, and he's over there going, <clears throat> he's, he's not shooing a fly. He's actually doing this motion, which means cut it off, cut it off. And I'm like, she's standing right there. She can see you. And then he'll do this, D-N-E, D-N-E, to which I'm going, um, dude, she's standing right there. She can hear you. She actually can hear you say the initials D-N-E. And he's like, mm, mm. And finally it'll come out, oh yeah, I used to live on your street. I would come over to your house. You would bully me. I would cry. Your mom would get mad at you. And you would tell me to leave and that I was ugly. Oh yeah, I never remember. And then she would keep talking and then I would get in the conversation. And finally he'd go, mm, D-N-E. She can still hear you. He's, finally he'll say this, hey, listen, and it's good to see you, but let's not make this more than it is. I'm not gonna like talk to you again after you're gone. So man, it's good to see you, bye. And I look at him, I'm like, what are you, that's the rudest thing I've ever seen. He goes, dude, D-N-E, do not engage. It's his rule, do not engage. He said, I got room for about two or three people. And I thought, am I in one of that? Am I in that group? I don't know. And I thought, you know, I gotta admit that does sound kind of nice. Every now and then you just go, mm, I'm sorry, I'm in a DNA phase right now. DNA, I'm just not going to engage anybody. But actually, as nice as that sounds in our flesh, that is not allowed for the church. It's above and outside our purvey and our pay grade. We are called to engage. And so, in fact, that's going to lead us to our big idea as we wrap up this series on Pursue. The big idea for the morning simply goes like this. We as the church are to engage with the exchanged. Engage with the exchanged. When you find yourself wanting to uh, slip off to be by yourself, when you see someone that you could talk to, but instead you do that, you break off, uh-uh, resist that. Resist that. Engage with the exchanged. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning explaining what I mean by exchanged. So if you've got your Bibles... I'm going to invite you to open them, to get into the passage. We'll also put it on screen, but I would love for you to have it in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, verses 11 through 21, and then we'll just very quickly unpack it and see if we can apply it and bring it home in a very practical sense. So, 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Remember, this is all about engaging with the exchange. Verse 11, Paul writes this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, which in and of itself is a miracle. It's a marvelous mystery. Saul of Tarsus, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, trained in Jerusalem under Rabbi Gamaliel. There's nobody that's a, a rising star more than Paul. And here he is having visited Corinth in Acts chapter 18. This is his fourth letter to the church in Corinth. He never, I'm sure, imagined it would go this way. We believe that Paul writes four letters to the Corinthians, that we have his second and his fourth letters. We don't have his first and his third. In God's sovereignty, that wasn't the plan. This is, we think, his fourth letter. He's probably sitting somewhere in Macedonia, perhaps Philippi when he writes this. It's in the mid-50s AD. Something has happened in Corinth. And Paul has to, again, write them a letter because things are not going well. See, this is Greece. A good little Jewish boy had been told about all of the horrors and the immorality of the outside Gentile world. And I'm sure a good little Saul of Tarsus never imagined he would find himself in Corinth. Corinth was the center of nasty. There's not enough penicillin on the planet to cure what was happening in Corinth, okay? It was actually in that day and age an adjective. If you referred to a young lady as Corinthian, you did not want your son marrying her. It was a port town. It was a sports town. It was a very, very rough and tumble, debauched town. A lot of temple prostitution happening. It was awful. I'm sure Paul could not believe that he finds himself in Corinth writing this to them. But there's a problem. See, Corinth is in Greece. And Greece was the seat of the orators. We know from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and from a lot of extra biblical writing that these guys called orators would come through town and they would pump iron and get all swollen up and in shape. 
and they would jump in a vat of tar, have every hair from their bodies removed, get slathered up in oil, and they would stand in the marketplace and they would deliver these impassioned pleas for politics or some other cause. And that's how you got it done. And they would raise uh, patronage. They would have... Um, sponsors that would give them lots of money, and that's how it was supposed to have gotten done in Greece. You looked a certain way. You were, you were charismatic. You looked the part. You looked sort of like a walking, talking Greek god. Paul says, yeah, uh, that's not how we do. So he's writing them this letter to defend his apostleship, to defend his authority. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because if you don't understand that, you will misapply 2 Corinthians 5. It is one of the central passages in our Bible explaining the glory and the grandeur of the gospel. But to really understand what's happening in chapter 5, we have to understand that 2 Corinthians chapters 2 through 6 are all about Paul defending his apostleship, saying, I don't do it the way the orators do. This is my ministry. This is how I do. And so in the passage that I just read in chapter 5, when he says, we, 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 it's not you. He literally means him and Timothy. He literally means him and Timothy. It's really easy because 2 Corinthians 5 is a central chapter, like Romans 8 or Romans 5 or Philippians 2. We want to just dive right in there, pick one verse and go, ooh, this is good. And it is, but we have to understand it was written by a person to some people in a place and he had a point and a purpose. We want to understand that Paul is defending his apostleship. And so when he says, we do this, this has happened for us, he's talking about him and Timothy. Now then, we can extract some truths and apply them to our lives, but we want to understand what Paul is saying here. So let me just very briefly walk through again. Chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. What's he talking about there? The fear is not horror, being afraid of, of being eaten. It is right reverence and respect. He says in the previous verse, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything we have done in this body since our conversion. Not a judgment of sin that happened at the cross. We will give an account for that which has happened in our bodies, in our lives since conversion. You see, Paul had already seen Jesus. It's in Acts chapter 9. Paul is on his way to Damascus. I think Paul's doing what we call the throne chariot meditation. We know that Pharisees and learned rabbis, uh, Jewish men, as they took long journeys, would ride a donkey or a horse. And as they went, they would meditate on and on and on about Ezekiel 1. You remember Ezekiel 1? Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the earth, right? That whole imagery the, the, the wheels and the, the lightning pants and the, the hot metal and the fire and all that stuff, they would meditate on that and just trying to catch a glimpse of the glory of God. And so my thought is, the way it's described, he's going along and he's in that meditation when pow, he's knocked off his horse and he's on his back and he looks up and he sees the risen Lord Jesus and it forever changes his life. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Ah. Eureka, Paul has changed. Paul understands that to harm God's people is an assault against God himself. To persecute God's people is to persecute God himself. And Paul is never the same. He understands that to love God is to love his people. Paul had seen the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5, he knows he will see him again. So he has a right view a right perspective. He knows he's going to see Jesus again. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Again, this we, 
It's not about you and me doing evangelism. Should we do evangelism? Yes. There are other passages that talk about that, but that's not what this text is saying. Paul is saying, we, me and Timothy, we try to convince people in the church. We have a message for the church. We're not trying to do it the way the orators do. We try to persuade others. What we are is known to God. Literally, what we are is manifest to God. God sees us accurately. He sees us as we really are. We are not pretending. We are not inauthentic. We are legit. And he says, I hope that it is known also to your conscience. I hope you remember we've always spoken authentically. We've always spoken sincerely. We've never played loose and fast. We've always been honest with you. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. Again, in Greece, you sort of got behind your champion, the one who was most swole, most oily, and the most gifted in speech. And Paul says, well, yeah, that, that's not me. You remember, we have a description of the apostle Paul that comes from Lystra in the, town, in the towns of Galatia. Paul was described as short, stunted, bow-legged, bald-headed, big-nosed, and unibrowed. This is your spokesmodel, church. This is the guy. He looks like a cave troll. And Paul's like, look, I know I'm not a whole lot. I know, I know. There are people who want to boast about outward appearances, but that doesn't matter. It is our message that matters. If you're wanting me to get all swole up and pumped up and greased up and be really fluent with my language, Paul says, it's not going to happen. I'm not even going to shave my unibrow. Not going to happen. So he says in verse uh, 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Again, us, it's Paul and Timothy. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Four, verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, ecstasis, literally standing beside ourselves is where we get our word for ecstasy, out of your mind. If I'm out of my mind, then that's fine. I'll be happy to be perceived that way. It is for God's sake. I will be happy to, perceive, to be perceived as crazy as long as it is for God's sake. Now listen, let me, let me be clear. There are a couple different kinds of Christians. There are those to whom the secularized world will say, I can't believe you believe in a God or in a spirit realm at all. I think you're crazy. I'm willing to do that because I fundamentally, foundationally believe in the existence of the spirit realm and the existence of a God who is deeply, personally involved in the lives of his people. I believe that. I believe in that more than I believe in the physical world around me. And people say, well, that makes you crazy. Fine. But then there's a different kind of crazy for God. These are people who say amen when they see a four-car pileup. Amen! Like, whoa, that's a car crash. That's not good. You got 17 Jesus fish on the back of your minivan. Okay, that's a different kind of crazy for God. We're not interested in that. You put the fun and fundamentalism. I get that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you are perceived by a increasingly hostile, secularized world as crazy for still holding to the existence of the spirit realm. That's okay. It is for God. But if we are in our right mind, if we are thinking clearly, man, we do that for you. We are carefully organizing our discourse because you are worth it. God is worth us being perceived as crazy. You are worth us doing the work to organize and give articulate discourse. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Again, this is true of Paul. 
I would love to say it's also true of me. It should be true of me. But remember, chapters two through six is Paul defending his apostleship for the love of Christ controls us. Your translation might say constrains us. It's been said, well, this means Paul's love of Jesus. Mm, probably not, grammatically. This is the love Christ has for Paul. It, sunecho, it is the idea of like a grandparent holding a young grandchild. It's the love of that child. I just hold them. Sometimes I'm protecting them. Sometimes I'm just embracing them. That's the same idea. The love of Jesus constrains. It guides, it directs, it organizes my life. Now, I want to jump up and down here for just a moment because what is true of Paul and Timothy, I pray would be true of me, even though much of the time it's not. The love of Christ for me constrains me, (laughs) except for when it doesn't. Like I confess candidly and transparently so much of my daily prayer life, particularly in the evenings as I'm falling asleep, my, my prayer life goes a little bit like this. My God, my God, you have not forsaken me. And yet so much of this day, I simply refused to believe that you love me. I simply chose to believe that you are disinterested or at best disappointed, which led me to have all of these kinds of conversations, to have all of these kinds of thoughts, to do all these kinds of things, because I simply refused to believe that you love me, the king who cares, the champion who died, the big brother who is proud. I simply refused to actively engage with the reality that you love me. If I would be persistent in that recognition, it would completely change my day. Paul says, this is the thing that constrains my whole life. Jesus loves me. They should write a song about that. Belmont professor David Dark says that religion is nothing more than the organizing narrative of your life. That's all it is. What is the thing that actually organizes your life? Paul says, for me and Timothy, it's that Jesus loves me. That's the organizing narrative of my life. It constrains me. It determines, it drives, it directs. Everything I do is that I am loved by Jesus. Now, I'll tell you, that is personally super convicting. How much of my life, I'm going to put it somewhere about 98.9% of my life, would be markedly different if I was practiced at persistently remembering that Jesus loves me. As in, I really believe I'm going to get to the end of the age. I'm going to stand before him, and God's going to say, Did you, do you now believe that I love you. I say, yes, yes, yes. I want to do that now. Paul says in verse 14, it is the love that Christ has for me. It compels, it constrains us because we have discerned, we have concluded, we have arrived at this realization that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now we come to it. Jesus died and he rose again. But those who are in Christ have also died. I got to be at some of your funerals. You may not remember. We held you under the water. You gurgled. You come up out of the water. It's awkward. We're all dry. You're wet. That's weird. And then we got you out of there. That was your funeral. It was not merely just getting significantly moisturized in public. That's not baptism. Baptism is the old you has died, being raised to walk in newness of life. That's what it means to be in Christ. He died. You didn't have to actually literally die. By faith, you say, I'm associating his death with mine. One died, and so all who are in him have died and were raised. From now on, therefore, Paul says in verse 16, 
We regard no one according to the flesh. <laughs> Just imagine this. This is Captain Scorecard. He's a Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. It's all about what you eat and don't eat, what fabrics you mix and don't mix, how many times you wash, how many times you pray, how much you give, how you look, the words that you say, all of those things. And that's regarding people according to the flesh, where they live, what they drive, how they vote, how they dress. Paul says, I don't do that anymore. All of that stuff, people have died in it and with it and they are raised to walk in newness of life. That's how we regard people now. Even though he says, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I think Paul had been in proximity with Jesus in his earthly ministry. He knew who this Yeshua was, this teacher from the Galilee, but he looked at him and looked down on him. He didn't come from the right family. He didn't live in the right place. He wasn't under the right rabbi. In fact, he wasn't under a rabbi. He judged him according to the flesh. Maybe some of you this morning, you still judge Christ according to the flesh. You think of Jesus as a nice guy some 2,000 years ago, probably a good teacher, probably a swell rabbi, maybe a rebel, maybe a revolutionary. Ah, Paul says, now I know he is the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't view him that way anymore. Therefore, I shouldn't view anybody else the same way. In other words, your view of Jesus must by definition change your view of others. Let me say that one more time because that was pretty good. Your view of Jesus must by definition dictate your view of others. That's what Paul is saying. We don't view anybody the way we used to. We used to view Christ one way, but now we know who he is and those who are in him are in him. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a very central, famous passage, and we like to have access to that one to remind ourselves that, oh yeah, I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. And that's true. But Paul is using this passage to remind us, hey, anyone around you that is in Christ, you are to look at them as a new creation. This verse is not about you and your glory. This verse is about your neighbor's glory. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis said, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter in the life after life. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. Paul says, oh my goodness, I no longer view anybody as just them. They are either in Christ, an eternally glorified being, or they have the potential of newness. Do you see how that changes everybody that you'll ever come into contact? They are either a new creation or they have the potential of newness. Now, this is why this verse is so glorious. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Just let me carry on and scream and holler for just a moment because this is so cool. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 65. Some 750 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says, one day Messiah will come and behold, he will make all things new. The old is passing away, the new shall come. And then in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, John sees the very end of the age and he says, ah, I saw Jesus and he said, behold, I am making all things new. Paul drops the atomic bomb. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, don't you see 
The thing that Isaiah said would happen 750 years ago, it happened at the resurrection. And those who are in Christ, it's you. You are the first fruits of him making all things new. That is this. What Isaiah was talking about, it's happening, but not on a cosmic global scale. No, it's happening on an individual scale. It's happening right there. It's happening right there. He's making all things new. And we didn't understand. We didn't know what to expect. We thought it was going to be the whole planet. It's not. Not yet. It's you, and it's you, and it's you. You are the bursting forth of Isaiah 65. That's how we are to look at one another. Not, huh, he took my parking place again, Nathan. No, no, I look at him and go, he is the bursting forth of God making all things new. It's happening, don't you see? Sometimes I doubt. I'm not so sure God's getting it done, but then I look at him. Then I look at her and I go, no, 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 he's making all things new. She's the testimony. She is the witness. God is getting it done. Paul says we are to see one another through different eyes. Well, verse 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This passage now is gonna use the word reconciliation five times in three verses. It's absolutely central. The word is katalasso and it literally means the exchange. It's not just a squaring of the accounts. It has the idea of giving the bad, taking the good. Giving the bad, taking the good. Giving the bad, taking the good. It's that kind of exchange. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Oh, from the very beginning, the reconciler has been seeking to exchange our bad for his good. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, Adam and Eve step away. They do not believe that God loves them. And as soon as it happens, God is described as walking through the garden saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Please. Let me take the bad and give you my good. The reconciler has always sought to reconcile. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Isaiah. We see it through the Psalms. The reconciler has always sought to take our bad and to give us his good. Maybe you've read Genesis 3-9 before and you thought that God's voice was more like, where are you? No, no, no. That's not how the text reads. The reconciler is walking through saying, where are you? Let me take it. Let me take all of your bad. You can have all of my good. Let's do this exchange. And so Paul says, we have been given this message. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Well, if he wasn't counting their trespasses against them, against whom was he counting their trespasses? Aha. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. Not go reconcile yourself. Not go figure all this stuff out and choose it whenever you're ready. Receive the deal. Take the deal. Be reconciled. Give the bad. Take the good. What is this reconciliation? What is this exchange? This one word, by the way, exchange, katalasso, was so monumental that it was what led Martin Luther to say, we got to make a change. 
This idea of exchange by grace, this is what it is, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the exchange. That's the exchange. A number of years ago, my parents, this is many, many years ago, received a tax bill. Something had happened, something had gone wrong like decades earlier and it had just sat there and compounded and built and compounded and built until when they were finally made aware of it, it was overwhelming. There was literally no way they were ever gonna be able to pay this back. They had that very real and immediate sense of we have a debt we cannot pay. And a good friend in town helped them and worked with them and went back and forth and sort of was an intermediary between the IRS. And there was some tax code I don't understand. I've never fully understood. I've just trusted the Lord with it. I don't know how this happened. But at the end of it, as they're starting to make decisions about, hey, we're going to have to move or sell our home or do all these kinds of things. At the end of it, not only was the debt removed, but they were actually due a small refund. I'll never forget my stoic dad who did not show emotion crying at what had happened. He did nothing for it. He had a debt that he could not pay. But not only was the debt eliminated, they received something instead. That is reconciliation. That is exchange. And Paul says we are to look at one another as those who have been exchanged, who have gladly released all of their debt and gladly received all of his good. That's the exchanged. And our charge this whole summer month of August has been that we are to engage with the exchanged. That's what church is to be about. It is not about a place where you and I show up, hear some teaching, sing some songs, and leave. I don't know what that is, but it's not church. Church is where the exchanged are engaged. So let me just give very quickly, if I can, four points of application on this. Why this text is here and why I think it is so uh, poignant for us in this day and age. First point goes like this. What goes around does not have to come around. That's what this text is teaching us. That for the believer, there is no such thing as karma. In fact, every other system of faith on the planet effectively operates on karma. What goes around necessarily has to come around. Causality, cause and effect. But then the cross drops right into the middle and says, no, what I send around, all of my depravity, all of my self-implosion, all of my error, all of my everything immoral doesn't come back and curse me. I instead receive blessing. That's the exchange. It's not fair. I know so many Christians that still operate in a functional karma. Oh, I have to do this, I have to do this so that God will do this. Stop it. That's another religion entirely. That is not the love of Christ compelling you, that is the love of your ability to execute compelling you. And it is a death. It is a slavery. What goes around does not have to come around. Second point this text is teaching us. Christ the King came to be a curse. The one who spoke into being the entire cosmos entered into that context to become a curse. He deserved nothing ill. In fact, he deserved all the glory of the cosmos. He didn't get what he deserved so that we could get what we didn't deserve. That's the exchange. He took all of our bad. We get all of his good. Christ the king becomes, came to be a curse. 
Third point, the currency of the kingdom is righteousness. I hear so often that reconciliation is like balancing the checkbook, squaring the accounts. No, no, and again, let me say, no. It is not merely settling accounts. It is an exchange. It is, I give you all the bad, I receive all of the good. It is not enough to merely have your sin removed. Insufficient, inadequate, no good. You would still be bereft and bankrupt before a holy God. The only way to have right standing before a holy God is to be filled with the measure of the righteousness of the Son of God. And so I voluntarily submit and lose all of my error, depravity, sin, trespass, and iniquity. And in return, I receive the righteousness of the Son of God. That's the currency of the kingdom. Not my ability, not my capacity. No, 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 no. It's righteousness, and I receive that by grace. Fourth point. We are ambassadors who proclaim, be reconciled to God. Take the deal. Take the deal. And when you encounter people who have taken the deal, remind them, we are exchanged. We do not have to strive, nor accomplish, nor obtain, nor achieve anything. We've taken the deal. Engage with the exchanged. We proclaim this message in everything that we do, in missions work, in service projects, in small groups, in marriage relationships, and in parenting. We are exchanged. We have every good and perfect thing that we need. And this is how the body of Christ is built. Now, it's such a big deal to Paul that he's gonna go on. Let me give just very quickly two more verses because here's the real payoff. It's in chapter six. He finishes off chapter five and he just real quickly, the first two verses of 2 Corinthians chapter six, verses one and two. Working together with God then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't be exchanged and then do nothing with it. There is something with which we are supposed to do. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Huh? Paul then says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse eight. And he says, listen, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the prophet Isaiah said, there will come a day when I will infuse the people of God to themselves be a blessing to the people of God. They will receive my grace and they will give grace. Paul says, I never thought I would see the day this is that. Behold, this is the day, he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. This is the day. Do not receive your exchanged life in vain. Your exchanged life is intended for somebody else. So all semester, we want to continue to remind every single person here to engage with the exchanged, to not allow the resistance of the enemy to atomize you, but rather that you will seek to clump together like cholesterol, to make molecules that you will just walk across the room. For some of you, that means it's time to pursue membership. You've been coming for weeks and weeks and months and you wondered, when is somebody gonna ask me to join? Right now! Super easy. You can just email me. You can go on Bethelbible.com slash membership and start the process. For, from, for some of you, you need to get involved in a life group. For some of you, <laughs> you need to get in the car and on the way to getting a a salad at Fuzzy's, turn to your wife and say, no more. We're all the way in on this deal. I'm not playing a game anymore. I've taken my exchanged life, my grace in vain. I'm ready to pour it out. 
This is how God builds his church. May it be as we come to the end of August and let's be careful to give God glory for whatever he does by this time next year. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are willing to exchange the galaxies of our depravity for the universe of your grace. It's not a fair deal, but you've done it by grace. And so I pray, God, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you, who is still trying to earn enough gold stars to outdo their red X's, that you will clarify the error of that thinking and you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They will take the deal, surrender and submit all of their error, give it up, let it be nailed to the cross and they will instead receive the righteousness and the love of your son, Jesus. For the rest of us, Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.